On Sunday evenings for the past few weeks, we have been addressing some errors that have been taught in the local area as well as among our brethren in various places. And uh, by way of beginning, I wanted to say something before I put our initial screen on this, uh, the slide on the screen behind me, is that sometimes when you and I study some of these, they're real problems for some people. And this is one that I had been asked to preach on earlier in the year, and uh, there was a reason for bringing it up for this occasion, but it is one that has been asked for uh, by several. And it's going to be on the subject of the rapture. And uh, to begin with, most Christians are unaware of the general teaching of premillennialism and in specific, the rapture. Uh, you have probably some friends who attend other religious bodies and they will come to you and they will say to you, uh, I'm looking forward to the Lord's millennial reign. And they'll talk about uh, how the signs of the time are so evident that they're expecting the Lord's return at any time. You may have seen the bumper sticker on some folks' car that says, in case of the rapture, this car will be unmanned. But let me point out to you that it seems like every few years this topic gets a boost from the media, uh, that there are people who are pushing it. And just recently, uh, a fellow who's a member of the church who's been here to McMinnville, or at least his family has, Willie Robertson has become the executive producer of what is called the Left Behind movie. And uh, I don't know if you know what that movie is, but uh, it is a new movie starring Nicolas Cage. There was an earlier version of it about uh, 15 years ago with Kirk Cameron. Uh, I have a, actually a copy of the DVD of that one. And uh, it is something that has captured the attention of several members of the church to the point where they begin to ask the question, is the rapture something that we should expect? Is it something that we should look for? But many people try to decide what is true based on personalities rather than going to the Bible. They'll say, well, I have a lot of confidence in this person or that person. Their religion is uh, something that impresses me, and so if they believe it is true, it must be true. Let me point out to you, words can be twisted. In Psalm chapter 56 and verse 5, David said, All day they twist my words. Have you ever had anyone take something which you have said and change it to say something which you never intended for it to say? Well, you go to 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, and Peter's writing about Paul's difficult topics and he says, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. You see, if people will twist your words, don't be surprised if they twist God's words to make them say something that God never intended. And so what we're going to do is our lesson is going to specifically examine the rapture, which is just one part of this big doctrine known 
as premillennialism. Uh, we could spend several lessons on premillennialism. I'm not going to. I really want to deal with the one which has captured everybody's attention. And so what we're going to do is look at a definition of the rapture. We're going to look at the defense of those people who teach it. And then finally, we're going to have a demolition of this false teaching. The word rapture is not a bad word. In fact, if you go to the dictionary and you look it up, the very first definition is a feeling of intense pleasure or joy. Quite often it is written enraptured, the fact that a person enjoys this. Let me point out to you, the Bible uses it that way. And our songs use it that way. For instance... In Proverbs 5, verses 19 and 20, he's talking about a man and his wife. And he says, as a loving deer and as a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. That is, a man should be taking joy in his wife. And he goes on to say, for why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and embrace in the arms of seductress. But I thought about several of our songs. For instance, Face to Face, He's My King, When All of God's Singers Get Home. Let me illustrate it to you. For instance, the second line of Face to Face in the first verse, When with rapture we behold Him, Jesus Christ who died for me. When with rapture we behold Him, it's joy, it's happiness. Or, he's my king in the chorus. He's my king, no other is above him. All day long, in raptured praise I sing. He's my savior, he's my king. When you say enraptured, in joy and in happiness. Or when all of God's singers get home, the second verse. As we sing here on earth songs of sadness or mirth, tis a foretaste of rapture to come. It's not talking about this denominational doctrine of rapture. It's talking about the joy or happiness. And that's the way the word is used. On the other hand, the second definition, if you go to that same dictionary, says, according to some millenarians, teaching, transporting of believers to heaven at the second coming of Christ. I don't think that really focuses fully upon the definition, but it's one that can be used. When you start talking about millennialism, there are people who are what is called dispensational premillennialists. And what they mean by that is they believe there's seven dispensations of time. And they believe that when you get to that last one, you start seeing the love of many grow cold. And they believe that's an indication that you're living in the last times. And they speak of, and I'm quoting here, a sudden, secret, silent, and invisible coming of Jesus. And that's, an un, that's a quote that you will find frequently. It's the fact that the Lord is going to somehow come and nobody's going to notice it. And the Left Behind movies are very clear in this. For instance, it begins with a, a pilot on an airplane, and all of a sudden a number of the passengers are gone, and particularly the babies. 
Or people go into a hospital and the nursery is just completely empty of the babies and the religious people, they're nowhere to be found. That it was sudden, that it was silent, it was secret, it was invisible. Nobody saw it happen. Let me give you a chart. I brought this one off the internet so a person could see it. And I'm going to turn around for just a moment to point to the fact that if you look over here on this side, they have eternity past, the Old Testament, then the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ back into heaven, and then they call this the church age. And if you'll notice, the dispensational premillennialism has Revelation chapter 2 and 3 there. Then they believe there will be a rapture in which Jesus Christ will come and he will take the righteous people from this earth and the righteous people from their tombs and they'll be caught up with the Lord in heaven. They will stay there and avoid a seven-year period of tribulation. Many of them will break it down into two sections, three and a half years and three and a half years. And then at the end of that seven years of tribulation, Jesus will then return from heaven with what they call the second coming and usher in a millennial kingdom of a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, the world will be destroyed. And then at that point, you'll have the great judgment day. Well, for just a few moments, let me give you some brief history of this doctrine, where it came from. History records that it began with the teaching of a man by the name of J.N. Darby. In fact, if you want to know the very origins of this, you cannot go back beyond 1820 and find anybody teaching the concept of a rapture. There was a young woman there in an area where he was preaching. Her name was Margaret McDonald. And she said she had a vision in which she saw the church being raptured up into heaven. And she came and told Mr. Darby. And then he began to preach that, that the church was going to be raptured. He came from Scotland to the United States and went to the Chicago area. And he came in contact with Dwight Moody. Dwight Moody is known for the Moody Bible Institute there. He was a very um, charismatic person. Many people listened to him. Radio broadcast and other things such as that later on uh, characterized this group. And they popularized the doctrine of the rapture. But when you get to the late 1800s, a man by the name of C.I. Schofield produced a Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. And what he did was something that was rather unique. Prior to that time... Notes might be in the back of a Bible, but he began to put notes in the margin of the Bible like a study Bible might be found today. And he began to teach this premillennialism. And many people bought these Bibles and they assumed that what they were reading there in the margins was just as inspired as the text. And so many people began to embrace that. Now fast forward to the 1970s when I was actually a teenager. And Hal Lindsey produced a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Not only did he produce a book that sold hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of copies, but they even made a movie, The Late Great Planet Earth. 
And I remember going and watching it when I was a teenager. And I remember it scared me to death. I thought, here's the Lord's going to come again. And, and uh, Russia, is, he said, was this great enemy who was going to come in and destroy Israel. And there was going to be this great battle of Armageddon. And I could just see nuclear holocaust everywhere. The problem is the Soviet Union fell apart. And the late great planted earth was no longer in favor. Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins then came along and they started writing a series of novels. Fiction, I remind you. And it was based upon the doctrine of premillennialism and the rapture. And the title of the series was called Left Behind. And like I said, about 15 years ago, Kirk Cameron made a movie in which... It was from the book of Tim LaHaye called Left Behind. And now there's been another one made, and it's uh, become very popular. So let's for a few moments talk about how they would defend this doctrine. And I would begin by pointing out there's not as much defense as there is an assertion. Let me explain the difference to you. To defend something means I give you evidence It means that I give you book, chapter, and verse and say, this is why, this is what the Bible teaches. And then you begin to see the evidence and you have to draw a conclusion. But assertion is, I can get up and I can make all kinds of statements, but if I don't provide any proof, it just remains an assertion, something that I've said is true. Let me point out to you some of the things that they say. They say that in the Bible you have people like Enoch and Elijah who were taken alive up into the clouds to be with the Lord. And they're saying, so you shouldn't think that's to be odd or strange. For instance, Hebrews 11 and verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Or 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Then it happened as they continued on and talked, that is, Elijah and Elisha, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with the horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and her horsemen, its horsemen. And so he saw him no more. What they're suggesting is is that that's what the rapture will be. There will be people like Enoch, people like Elijah, just taken up into heaven all of a sudden. And they say that some will be translated alive. And what they will do is they'll point out 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And so they're saying, see, here we're we're all going to be changed into a different state as we rise up in the air. And then going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning with verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning uh, those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord, or we who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And they would say, see, we're going to be raised up to meet the Lord in the clouds. And then the passage that Brother Tyler read from Luke 17, verses 34 through 37. I tell you, in that night, there'll be two men in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women grinding together and one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Do you see what the picture that they're trying to paint? And so in your mind, you're beginning to say, wow, there's a lot of coincidences here. So what's going to happen is you're going to have two people, maybe a husband and wife, and all of a sudden the wife wakes up and where's my husband? Or the husband wakes up, where's my wife? She's gone, she's disappeared. Or two people will be working at a factory and all of a sudden, well, where's John? He's disappeared. He's gone. Let's talk about now demolishing this. There's a number of perverted passages. When you take a passage out of its context and you just quote it because it sounds like it is saying what you want it to say, that's proof texting. Let's look at some passages. They talk about the tribulation. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 is one of the passages that they will mention. He says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. And they say, See, the Lord says the tribulation is coming and I am going to take you out of that. That sounds pretty good until you realize that he's writing the seven churches of Asia. And when he writes those seven churches, and I've visited the area of every one of them, you go back to chapter 2 and verse 10, and he says, Do not fear any of those things of which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you shall have tribulation ten days. He said that to the church at Ephesus. You see, what they want to do is they want to take one little passage and say, see there, it's saying the church is not going to have any tribulation. And yet, the same writer, John, writing at the directions of the Lord, said to another congregation, you will have tribulation. To the church at Philadelphia, however, he told them they would not. In John 16, in verse 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. You see, what they've done is taken that one word, tribulation, and they've tried to pull it out and make it a specific point in time 
when it describes the sufferings of Christians. Some would suffer. Most will suffer. But the church at Philadelphia would not. Acts 14, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. But I want to focus for just a moment back on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I'm not going to put it back on the screen. If you want to look it up in your Bible, you can. But I want you to notice some things that are to be observed. This passage is only discussing those who sleep in Jesus. The reason why is there are some who are worried that their family who have died are going to no longer exist. And he says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who fall asleep or have fallen asleep, that you saw or not as the others who have no hope. He's focusing on those who do have hope. He's focusing on the Christians and what they will enjoy. And he's going to point out those who are alive at the coming of the Lord will not precede, go ahead of those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. In fact, he said the dead in Christ will rise first. And then when you compare that to 1 Corinthians 15... Then those of us who are alive will be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. But I suggest to you just look at the context. Verses 13 through 18 relate that, and then you get to chapter 5 and verse 1. And remember, there weren't any chapter division and verse divisions when Paul wrote this epistle. And notice what he says in verses 1 and 2. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the, listen carefully, day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord. If he's talking about a rapture and he's talking about the day of the Lord, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, what's going to happen on that day? It just so happens that Peter talks about it as well. Verse 10 and 12 through 12 in chapter 3 of Second Peter. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Same description. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Dropping down now to verse 12. Because of which the heavens will be dissolving on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. When Jesus comes back again, it's not going to be to just take the righteous up out of this earth. It is going to be a day of the Lord in which the earth itself will be destroyed. I'm sorry, but you can't put a thousand years in there. It's just not there. But you say, what do you do about Luke 17? Where he has two people. One is taken and the other is left. Luke 17 is paralleled in Matthew 24. And I, I can't spend all of the night talking about Matthew 24. I just want to bring just a few verses to your attention. Beginning with verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand. Then those that are in Judea 
flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go back down or not go down to take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And I pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there would be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless those days are shortened, no flesh would have been saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. You see, the description that he's giving here is very plain. You drop down to verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you that this generation shall by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, folks, here's some things that you notice. This is regarding the destruction of the literal city of Jerusalem. That's what he's talking about. He told them to flee to the mountains. When Jesus comes again, I can assure you there will be no value in fleeing to any mountain anywhere. You can't hide. They were told to move quickly. He said, you don't, if you're on the rooftop, you don't try to go back and get something. If you're out in the field, you don't go back and get your clothes. He said, you need to get out of town. And he says, pray that it's not going to be in winter or on the Sabbath day. What difference will it make what time of year the Lord returns? And the reason you hear is, is because it's in that generation. And unless we have some 2,000-year-old plus people, this passage is not talking about something in our day. It's talking about something in their day. What about the Lord's second coming? Will it be sudden, silent, secret, and invisible? Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Does that sound like something God's trying to keep quiet? Or listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. This is the last trumpet. There's not going to be any more sound after this one. And that's what he's describing in the same context. Is that quiet? Listen to Revelation 1 and verse 7. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. And the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. Every eye will see him. But now here is the passage which, in my judgment, finally nails the door shut. In John 5, verses 28 and 29, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. There's not going to be a resurrection of just the righteous people who are going to somehow be caught up with just the righteous people and they're going to spend seven years with the Lord in heaven and then Jesus is going to come back again. 
when the dead are raised, they're all going to be raised, good and bad. Premillennialism and all that goes with it is false. And there will be none left behind when the Lord comes again. There's not going to be anybody who can say, well, I'm going to go find me a hiding place and when the Lord comes, I, he, He's going to somehow skip me. No. Now I'm going to tell you what I think is perhaps behind some of the more modern approaches. And I think it's the second chance. They want to believe that the Lord's going to come out, somehow come and get all the good people and that you're going to be left behind here and that you're going to open your eyes and say, well, you know, I should have listened to my mother, my father. I should have listened to my husband, my wife. I should have done what is right. And so now I'm going to have somehow be given a second chance before the Lord returns again. There will not be multiple resurrections nor multiple returns of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time. Apart for sin, for salvation. Jesus is going to come one more time. And when He does, that will be the end. Now here's the question for you. Are you ready for the Lord's return? When He comes, 1 Corinthians 15 says that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you're not going to have an opportunity when the Lord returns again to say, hold on just a second. You mean I've got seven years to be able to correct things? No, you're not going to have that. When the Lord returns again, you're not going to be able to immediately say, you know, let, let's go find somebody to baptize me. You don't have time for that. But you do have right now. And you can make the right decision if you so choose. If you need to be baptized or need to be restored, would you come and while we stand and sing?